Well, good morning. It's great to see all of you. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to Genesis chapter 16. Thank you so much for uh, those of you who normally come to the 11 o'clock service and you've come to the early service this morning. Uh, Grateful. Yeah, all of you in the back row. Awesome. Thank you guys for doing that. And uh, uh, that will make way for students in the 11 o'clock service, which we're really thankful for. So uh, it's been a great weekend uh, for our uh, Spark weekend, or you might know it as a Disciple Now weekend. Uh, It's been a wonderful time with students. Uh, The A-Bears have hosted 11th grade girls in our house, and so uh, we are sleepy this morning. That was me in the dunking booth. Um, I think the students were excited. They've seen me dunk so many people. They were excited to dunk the pastor. But uh, with the the sprinkling coming down, now the joke is on them. Everybody's getting baptized this morning. So... um, I think, I've, I think I've told you uh, <clears throat> that I aspired to be a major league baseball player uh, when I was young. Uh, I just lacked the size, speed, and skill. <laughs> when I was about uh, 12 years old, uh, I, I faced a crisis as a young ball player. My batting average went from uh, average or, or mediocre to terrible. And I went from just being an okay hitter to not being able to make contact with anything. It was embarrassing, but I do have an excuse. I found out that year that I needed glasses and my poor batting average, dropping batting average was was part of how I found that out. You know, keep your eye on the ball is only good advice if you can actually see the ball. And so I went to the the, uh, eye doctor and uh, all of a sudden I discovered that trees have these things called leaves. It was wonderful, the detail, you know, all of a sudden just putting on a pair of glasses, I could see what I couldn't see before. I had been short-sighted. You know, short-sightedness is when you can see clearly what's right in front of you, but you can't see much further than that. Genesis chapter 16 is an example of short-sightedness in the lives of Abram and Sarai. Like Lot in Genesis chapter 13, Abram and Sarai in Genesis chapter 16 make a decision based not on what God could see, Uh, but on what they could see. And this is an example of short-sighted faith. They could only see what was right in front of them. They couldn't see beyond that. Now, up to this point, the life of Abram is really like a spiritual seesaw. It's just up and then it's down and then it's up and then it's down. So let's just remember a little bit where we've come. Genesis chapter 12, they are up. God makes incredible promises to Abram and his family of blessing and a land and offspring and a descendants who will bring blessing to the nations, that's, that's up. And then Abram uh, steps into the land. He marks it off north to south, building altars as he goes. That's, a, that's an up moment for Abram, that, but that's followed immediately by a down moment for Abram as he caves to fear and uh, experiences a famine, is uh, sent down into the land of Egypt where he acts with a lack of integrity and lies about his wife, Uh, being his sister instead of his wife, and Pharaoh takes her into his harem. And uh, that is a down moment uh, for Abram where he tries to take things into his own hands to try to secure the outcome of the promise and uh, to to preserve his life and to, to, to prosper himself. And that ends, of course, in disaster. Pharaoh's house gets sick, but God delivers Abram and his family In Genesis chapter 13, you have a moment of repentance where Abram comes back to the altar and and he turns back towards the Lord. So we go from down to up. 
And uh, here we are up again in, in Abram's life, and you move into Genesis chapter 14, where Abram begins to conquer his enemies and uh, just amazing victories in the life of Abram. That's followed again by a down moment in Genesis chapter 15, where uh, even though Abram had been bold and courageous in chapter 14, defeating a, a bunch of uh, Mesopotamian kings, now in chapter 15, he's plagued with fear, plagued with doubt. Up and down, and up and down. Can anybody identify with the life of Abram? When I read Abram's life, I'm just like, man, this looks like my life. You, you don't always live on the mountaintop. You have great victories, but then followed by, by the valley and by uh, great trial and fear and doubt. Even in the midst of all of this, one thing that is constant in the ups and the downs is Abram's faith. And that's what faith is. It's, it's that constant, long obedience in the same direction, even in the ups and in the downs. When you're up or you're down, it's not keeping you from continuing to walk towards the Lord. And that's what's happening in Abram's life. We have this wonderful statement in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, which someone has called the John 3:16 of the Old Testament. That in the midst of all of this, in the midst of the fear and the doubt and the failure and the ups and the downs, Abram believed God. And God credited it to him as righteousness. What a great statement of Abram's faith. What a great statement of what it means to be righteous and, and to be accepted by God. This is a wonderful statement. It tells us how to be accepted by God, that the basis of our acceptance by God is, is not religious activity or moral self-effort, but simple trust in God. Abram believed and he was accepted by God. This is great, right? But that great faith turns into epic failure when we turn the page to Genesis chapter 16. Here in Genesis chapter 16, God still has not fulfilled his promises to Abram. This promise of blessing, this promise of a nation, this promise of offspring and descendants, God has still not come through on God's word. And so in Genesis chapter 16, Abram and Sarai, not being able to see much past the nose on their own face, decide to take things into their own hands because of God's delays. What do you do when God delays? What do you do when you're waiting for an answer from God? Well, let's look and see <clears throat> what Abram and Sarai did. The story begins with a sinful choice. Let's look together. I want to read the first four verses. It says, Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him. But she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. You may wonder where Hagar came from. Most likely back in Genesis chapter 12 when Abram and Sarai are down in Egypt. And Abram gives Sarai to Pharaoh. Pharaoh gives Abram flocks and herds and servants. It's likely that that's where Hagar came from. Now she is their slave. Verse 2, Sarai said to Abram, since since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her, I can build a family. Literally, Abram obeyed his wife. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Verse three, so Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan 10 years. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. Okay, so the story begins with a problem in verse 1. God had promised Abram a nation. 
an offspring. He gives detail to that between chapter 12 and chapter 15 of Genesis that, uh, Abram, your offspring are going to be like the sand of the seashore. They're going to be like the stars in the starry night sky, innumerable. You won't even be able to count the number of kids and grandkids and great-grandkids that you're going to have. And between the time that God makes that promise and chapter 16 is 10 years. And that 10 year, a decade, that's a long time. In that decade, Abram's wife still had not gotten pregnant, no children. Now, back in chapter 11 and verse 30, it tells us why that's the case, because Sarai was unable to conceive. So she's dealing with infertility. Think about, think about the burden that Sarai must have been carrying. To know that God had made your husband a promise, a promise for a child, for children, for grandchildren, for many descendants. But you've been infertile your whole marriage. You know that you're the only hope of your husband having children. And Sarah is just getting older at this point. She's, we might say she's no spring chicken. That's the original Hebrew, okay? You can write that out in your margin. Sarai is no spring chicken. She's just getting older. It's like with every passing year, she is just watching any possibility of this promise being fulfilled just slipping through her hands. And with every passing year that no child comes, it just keeps drawing the attention back to her infertility. She's the reason there's no child. That's not only a burden. That's a deep grief. Not only was Sarai carrying this burden and this grief of infertility, but imagine the pressure that Abram must have been feeling at this point. I mean, here you come and you tell your family that God has spoken to you. God has revealed himself. God has made promises, and they are fantastical promises. A nation, land, blessing, offspring, and here we are 10 years later, no child. Genesis chapter 15, <clears throat> Abram is assuming maybe it's his servant that's going to be the child, that he's going to adopt Eleazar into his house. That will be the descendant. But Genesis chapter 15, God makes it clear, no, Abram, this one's going to come from your own body. This is going to be your child. And here we are, Genesis chapter 16, still no child. So there's a sense in Genesis chapter 16 of a growing impatience with the Lord. God, where is your promises? How many of you would be willing to say that at a certain time in your life you've been impatient with the Lord? Can I raise two hands for that one? You're waiting, waiting. Doesn't seem like God is moving. Doesn't seem like God is acting. God, where are you? Verse 3 includes this little detail. Pay attention to the details of the text. The detail is that they've been 10 years in the land at this point. The author is trying to get you to understand this is taking a long time. God is taking his good old time here to come through on his promises. That's a long time for anyone to have to wait for God to do what he said he would do. When is God going to come through? Maybe you can relate. You've had to wait on the Lord for something. Maybe, maybe you've been waiting on the Lord for a spouse. Maybe you've been waiting on the Lord for a child. Or maybe you've been waiting on the Lord for a job or a breakthrough of some sort. Or maybe you've been waiting on the Lord for an answer to prayer. And maybe you've been praying 
for years about something. Maybe you've been praying for a loved one or a child who's far from God, or you've been, you've been praying about something that just seems like God is not moving. What do you do when it seems like God isn't moving? And when what you face seems to be an impossible situation, I mean, think about it. Abram and Sarah, they, they know infertility. And God keeps telling them, no, you're gonna have kids. At a certain point, that becomes difficult to hear when you know it's not gonna happen and God keeps saying it's gonna happen and it's not happening. So there's a delay here. That's the problem, is delay. And then there's doubt that God would do what he said. Now, now verse two shows us a a key detail about Sarah's theology here. Don't, don't skip over this. She believes that the Lord has the power over the womb. You notice what she says here in verse 2? She says, the Lord has prevented me from having a child. And in other words, Sarah understands who opens and closes the womb. She, she understands that if God wanted to give her children, he could give her children. He under, she understands that God could do this if he wanted to. And, and so there's a sense of accusation against the Lord He has withheld children from me. He could give me children, but he isn't giving me children. And folks, I don't know about any more frustrating situation than when you know God could do something and it doesn't seem like he is doing something. So what do they do? Well, this doubt causes Abram and Sarai to make a terrible decision in verse 2. In verse 2, they decide to help God be God. They, they see God isn't coming through in his promises. He could. He's got the power, but he's preventing this. So they decide they're going to give God a hand. In verse 2, Sarai says to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. Sarai looks at her servant, Hagar, and tells Abram to sleep with her so that they can have children, right? Because chapter 15, God said, this is going to come from your own body, Abram. He didn't say it's going to come through Sarai's body. So you can kind of see the wheels turning a little bit for Sarai. Okay, if it's going to come through Abram, but I'm infertile, then how are we going to make this happen? Ah, I've got a servant. Now, this seems awful because it is awful. As awful as it was, it was common in that day. Okay, this kind of surrogacy, if you had a servant in the house, this would be a normal cultural custom to give, if you struggle with infertility, give your servant to your husband, try to produce a child. So, so Sarai does what makes sense to her. She, she does what's normal in that day and time. That culture would have been perfectly acceptable. She can't see any way that God's going to keep the promise through her. So she does what makes sense. She does what's rational to her. She does what maybe everyone around her would have affirmed. She does what maybe her friends at tennis would have said you should do. Hey, what about Hagar? So she takes her servant and gives her to Abram. Now, that's an ironic reversal of what happened in Genesis chapter 12, right? Genesis chapter 12, Abram gives his wife to an Egyptian. Now, in Genesis 16, Sarai gives an Egyptian to her husband. Notice what's happening here with Sarai. Notice the language in verse 2. Perhaps through her, I can build a family. I want you just to notice, circle, underline that phrase, I can build, because that same phrase is used once before in the book of Genesis, back in chapter 11 and verse 4, about the story of the Tower of Babel, where all of the people gather together in Babel, and they say, let us make bricks, and we will build a tower. 
that reaches to the heavens. And right, and anytime you see the Babel story, you ought to just know this is not good. It's that sense of, let's see what we can do. Let's see what we can do with our power, with our own resources. That's what Sarah does. She does the same thing that people did at Babel. Look at what I can build. God's not moving on my timetable. God's not doing what I want him to do. Look at what I can do. Look through my ingenuity. Look, I I can take circumstances into my own hands. I can make this happen. Like Lot here, she decides to walk by sight, not by faith. We can't see what the Lord is doing. We can't see the Lord doing what we want him to do. So let's do what we can do. They're trying to manufacture something here. They're trying to make something happen. I don't know if you've ever tried to do that in your life when God seems to be taking his sweet time to do what you're hoping he'll do. Sometimes we can be tempted to sort of help the process along a little bit. Try to make something happen. That's exactly what Sarai is doing. God isn't moving as fast as we want him to move. He isn't doing what we want him to do. So let's, let's give him a hand. That, that strategy is as old as time. For a long time, humans have taken things into their own hands to try to get God to do what they want him to do, whether by hook or by crook. I read this week about uh, societies as far back as 5,000 years ago <clears throat> where some cultures believe that Everybody all right back there? The rain? Yeah, Lord, is that you? Uh, Some societies believe that avocados possessed magical properties as a fertility symbol. And so they would offer avocados as sacrifices to their gods so they could manipulate them into giving them children, right? We, We want God to do what we want him to do at all costs. And so we're gonna try to manipulate him. We're going to try to manufacture him. We're going to try to bargain with him. Anybody ever tried to bargain with God? You can half raise your hand if that's been you. It's just another way of restating Genesis 3, 5. Adam and Eve took the fruit because they wanted to be like God. That's Abram and Sarai in this moment. So they take things into their own hands and they do it by departing from God's design. God's clear design for marriage and for a relationship between a husband and a wife back in Genesis chapter 2 would be that they would leave behind other relationships, that a husband and his wife would be joined in one flesh. That was God's clear design in the beginning for marriage. It's still his design today that any kind of sexual intimacy or expression is to be experienced exclusively in the context of marriage between one man and one woman for life. Amen? Any departure from the way that God has designed marriage and sex and relationships will always, always lead to brokenness. And here Sarai has invited a third person into the relationship in the same way that Abram had done it in Genesis chapter 12, inviting someone else into their relationship. Here's what they're trying to do. They're trying to seek the blessing of God apart from God. They're saying we want God's blessing our way. We can do whatever we want and expect God to put his stamp of approval on it. We think that we can depart from his design. He's still going to give us his promised child. Listen, you cannot try to seek God's blessing apart from God. If you want the blessing of God on your life, listen, God's blessing only comes when we do God's will, God's way, and in God's timing. And here, Adam and Eve, uh, excuse me, Abram and Sarah, I just like Adam and Eve, They depart from God's design. And this departure from God's design leads Abram and Sarai to dehumanize their neighbor. 
I mean, look, look at the, the language here of how they treat Hagar. But the language in, in verses 2 and 3 is actually reminiscent of the Garden of Eden when Eve took the fruit and gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Here, Sarai took Hagar and gave her to Abram. What's Abram's role in this? Well, he's completely passive, just like Adam was, right? You remember Eve takes the fruit, gives it to Adam, who was what? With her. Adam's just standing, watching, passively, not leading spiritually, not stepping into that God-given role to be the spiritual leader of his home. Adam just watches. Here, Abram does the exact same thing. Sarai's doing the action, and it says literally, Abram obeyed his wife. No objection, no red flags, no conversation, no discussion, no Abram saying, hey, oh, oh, this is maybe not a good idea. Where's God in this? Isn't there a design to marriage? Isn't this, isn't this a sin? Isn't this something we should not do? No, Abram doesn't put up any objections whatsoever. The text would tell us if he had. He just agrees. So look at his character here. I mean, he's, he's manipulating, both of them, manipulating the circumstance to try to get what they want. He, he is completely abdicating his role, any kind of spiritual leadership in the home. And now they together are mistreating Hagar here. Together they treat Hagar not like a person, they treat her like property. Here's my slave. Take her. Th they believe that the ends justify any means whatsoever. Folks, for a Christian, that can never be the case. The means matter. The ends don't justify the means. You, you can't have godly ends with ungodly means. Here they're trying to get a godly end. Children, it's a blessing. It's a good thing. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a part of the promise of God for, the, for Abraham's family, but, but they're trying to take an ungodly pathway to get to a, a godly end. They're not gonna wait on God. No, they're tired of waiting. They're not going to trust God. They're tired of trusting. They're not going to pray to God. They're tired of asking. Instead, they, they decide to rush God's timing and ignore God's way, instead taking things into their own hands. And folks, disaster results. So I want you to see this sinful choice leads to some sad consequences. Things get worse in verse 4. We begin to see some consequences of this ungodly choice, of this total disregard for God. We're gonna do things our own way. No, thank you, God. We don't need your help anymore. We'll take it from here. That will always lead to consequences. We see consequences for Abram and Sarah that will follow them for the rest of their lives. Look down in verse four. He slept with Hagar, she became pregnant. Now, when she saw that she was pregnant, that is when Hagar saw that she was pregnant, her mistress, who's her mistress? Sarai, became contemptible to her. Literally, contemptible in her sight. Pay attention to that. Contemptible in her sight. So Hagar gets pregnant, but then she becomes proud. She's now displaced her mistress. Sarai's struggled to give Abram a child, but now Hagar doesn't, doesn't take but one try. She gets pregnant, and she becomes proud of her pregnancy to the point that she begins to look down on Sarai. She's gotten the blessing, it seems, that was promised to Sarai, this offspring. 
And Sarai now becomes literally contemptible in her sight. Abram and Sarai have walked by sight, not faith. Now Sarai is seen as nothing in Hagar's sight. And this introduces a conflict in their marriage. Look down at verse five. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. Blame shifting, just like the Garden of Eden, right? I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. You see what Sarai's doing? She's pointing the finger at Abram. You know, that's exactly where the finger should be pointed. Abram is responsible for this. No one made him do this. He should have stood up. He should have raised a flag. He should have said, no, this is not the way. And yet he agreed. He went along with it. He is still held responsible here. And now there's a conflict in their marriage as Sarai accuses Abram literally of having perpetuated suffering on her. You are responsible for my suffering. There are consequences for Hagar. Look at verse 6. Abram replied to Sarai, here, your slave is in your power. Do whatever you want with her. In Hebrew, it's literally this. Do to her what is good in your sight. You see that? Hagar looks at Sarai. Sarai is contemptible in her sight. Now Abram says to Sarai, take Hagar and do what is good to to her in your sight. You see, they are walking by their what? Sight, by what they can see. So what happens? Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. This tells us something about Abram's view of women. He viewed women as expendable. This is now the second time that he's allowed a woman to be thrown into a situation that endangered her. First time was Genesis chapter 12, where he allows Sarai to be endangered in the house of Pharaoh. Now, second time, Hagar. Hands her over to his cruel wife to do to her whatever his wife saw fit. No regard for Hagar's safety. Now the mother of his child. No protection over Hagar. He just says, treat, treat her like property. Treat her like a household dog. And so Sarah begins to mistreat her. If you've ever been abused, dehumanized, mistreated by someone in authority, then you can identify with Hagar here. Interesting word here, mistreated. It's the same word back in chapter 15 and verse 13 where God tells Abram that his descendants will be oppressed in Egypt for 400 years. The word oppressed is the same word here, mistreated. There's an irony here. What's going to be inflicted upon Abram's children by the Egyptians is now inflicted upon an Egyptian by Abram's wife. So Hagar runs away. She's now a single mom. Having been abused, mistreated, treated as property, she now runs away from Abram and Sarai. Verse seven tells us that she heads to the wilderness of Shur. That's down by Egypt. They've been up in Canaan. If you look on your Bible maps, Shur is down towards Egypt. So what's Hagar doing? She's going home. She's working her way through a wilderness just to try to get back to Egypt. And she's going, we're gonna see here in a moment, she's gonna give birth to a son. She's gonna name him Ishmael. So so we've seen consequences for Abram and Sarai. There's consequences for Hagar. But what we're also going to see is that there are consequences for Ishmael. I want you just to drop down to verses 11 and 12. The angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. 
Now look at verse 12. What's Ishmael gonna be like? This, this man will be like a wild donkey, out of control. If you've ever had a wild teenage son, Ishmael was like the first. His hand will be against everyone. He'll be a fighter. Everyone's hand will be against him. He'll be despised. And he will settle near all his relatives. That word near is a sad word. He's not gonna settle with his relatives. He'll settle near them. You're gonna find out in Ishmael's life, later in the story, he's gonna be sent away. He's gonna become a wanderer. He'll be in conflict with others. So there are consequences. Listen, consequences for Abram and Sarai. There are consequences of this sinful choice for Hagar. There are consequences now for Ishmael, right? The scripture says that the sins of the fathers will be passed on generation after generation. Now, that doesn't mean that you're doomed to commit the sins that your parents committed. It means that your parents' sin will affect your life. And that's exactly what happens with Ishmael. And by the way, because of what happens with Ishmael, there are going to be consequences for Israel. Right? It's going to be, if you trace the story out, the descendants of Ishmael are going to become enemies of the descendants of, of Isaac. And by the way, this conflict between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac means that the consequences in this story are not just for Abram and Sarai. It's not just for Hagar. It's not just for Ishmael. It's not just for Israel. There are consequences from this story for us today. You can trace the modern Arab-Israeli conflict, including what is happening on the Gaza Strip right now, to this very story. This is the genesis of it all. This is where it all comes back to. The descendants of Ishmael are gonna become 12 Arab tribes, largely Islamic later on, centuries later. The descendants of Isaac are going to become the Jewish people and, and they have been fighting ever since. What a mess. What a mess. I, I mean, this is a cesspool of human failure. This is worse than a soap opera. We just see the ripple effects of Abram and Sarai's sin, their lack of trusting God in this moment, their impatience with God, they're taking things into their own hands. Listen, sin always has consequences. This story shows us that while forgiveness for sin is possible, consequences for sin are inevitable. That should be a dire warning to us. When we're impatient with the Lord, we decide to hurry the process along. We'll take it from here, God. We'll do things our own way. We'll rush your timing. We'll ignore your way. And maybe you make a foolhardy decision and you, you bound off trying to do things in your own way. Listen, there is forgiveness possible through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I'm thankful for that. But there are still abiding consequences for our sin. Amen. Here we see abiding consequences from this sin. <clears throat> but... There's always a but. Aren't you thankful for that? Amen. The gospel means there's always a but God in the story. There's, there's a but here. Even though Abram and Sarai <clears throat> and Hagar and Ishmael and Israel experienced consequences for their sinful choice, all hope is not lost. Because in the midst of this sinful choice, in the midst of these sad consequences, we also see in this story God's sovereign care. God was faithful even in Abram's mess. Look what happens. Beginning in verse 7, it says, The angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she replied, I'm running away from my mistress, 
Sarai. So, so Hagar runs away. She ends up in the wilderness, but the Lord found her even there. Now, how many of you have ever been to the wilderness of Shur? Anybody ever been there? I don't see any hands raised. I've not been there. How many of you could locate it on the map? No hands raised? Me neither. You'd have to Google it. This is the backwoods. Except there's no woods, it's just desert, it's wilderness. But the Lord tracked her down and found her there. The angel of the Lord appears her. I think there's a good word for us there that no matter where you go, there's no place you can go, even in desperation, the Lord can't find you. Here he cares so much that he finds her in the backwaters of the wilderness and appears to her. And then the Lord spoke to her through this angel of the Lord. And notice there are three things the angel says to Hagar. First, verse 9, he's going to tell her to go back and submit to Sarai. Look at verse 9. It says, the angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. That's the first thing she says. Second thing he says is verse 10. He says, I'm going to greatly multiply your offspring. Look at verse 10. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring, and they will be too many to count. This sounds kind of like the promise God made to Abram for descendants that will be like the stars of the sky. Now God makes the same promise to Sarai. And then there's a third thing he says in verses 11 and 12, that you'll have a son, and you'll call him Ishmael. We've already read those verses, and he describes this son, Ishmael. So, so look at what's happening, happening here. The Lord cares so much about Sarai that he promises to bless her. God's in the blessing business. He's blessing people throughout the book of Genesis. From Genesis chapter one, he creates Adam and Eve. He blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. He wants to bless people. He blesses Noah. He blesses Shem. He blesses Abram. Now he blesses even this Egyptian slave who's been mistreated. He blesses Sarai. And the shape of that promise looks like the Abrahamic covenant. I'm gonna give you offspring that will multiply. It's amazing here because he blesses and includes an outsider, an Egyptian, right? You remember chapter 12, he promises to bring blessing to the nations. Here he brings blessing to one of the nations, an Egyptian. But the shape, the shape of God's blessing is a bit surprising here to me. I I don't know if verse nine caught you the way it caught me, but God asks Hagar to go back and submit to Sarai. And that's difficult to understand. I read that verse and I thought, well, why doesn't he just liberate Sarai? I mean, here you have a, a, a mistreated slave who's escaped. She has run away. You would think God would encourage her, go home, go back to Egypt, go to back, back to your parents' house, go back to safety. And yet that's not what God does. He actually says, I want you to turn around. I want you to go back to Sarai and I want you to submit to her. Why not liberate Hagar? Well, I think there are a couple of things to consider here. First of all, And this is very important because it's the opposite of what you'll hear in many contexts. God, listen, sometimes allows hardship for those he loves. Sometimes God calls us to hard seasons of obedience. Listen, when you become a follower of Jesus, things are not just going to be all daisies. If you follow Jesus more than a day, you know that that's true, right? Can I get a witness? It's tough to follow Jesus. And people in the world can't understand that. Why follow a God who calls you to go through hard things? Well, sometimes the Lord just calls us to go through hard things for his glory. Just because God loves us doesn't mean he won't allow us to endure pain. 
So that's one thing. I think God is just calling Hagar to trust him. Sarah, uh, Hagar, I'm going to bless you. I promise to bless you. I, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to bless him. But I'm also calling you to trust me in this moment. I'm calling you to do something difficult, ca- calling you to do something that doesn't make human sense. Go back. This is a hard season of obedience, but he promises to bless her in it. That, that, that's really the second thing to consider is that because God loves us, he also desires blessing for us. He had promised to bless Abram and to bless those who blessed Abram and to curse those who cursed Abram. The sphere of God's blessing would be with who? Abram. Abram. So God knew that for Hagar to really experience the fullness of the blessing, she needed to be within the sphere of Abram's household. He's sending her back to a nation that he had promised to bless because he intended to bless her as well. Even though that path to blessing would mean hard obedience. So he calls her, even though he loves her, to something hard, but he also promises to bless her in it. Sarah has mistreated you, yes, but I've promised to bless Abram's house. And even though the shape of that blessing will be difficult, that road will be marked with pain, Hagar, I'm asking you to go back to that place because I know that's where you'll experience the greatest amount of blessing. And amazingly, Hagar obeys. That's exactly what she does. She goes back to Abram's house. What a contrast with Abram and Sarai. Abram and Sarai, at the beginning of the story, they don't obey God at all. They act with total disregard for the Lord. Hagar, here's what maybe is the hardest things she could ever do in her life. Go back to that place where you've been mistreated and she obeys the Lord. Does exactly what God has called her to do. How could she do that? What could give Hagar the kind of resources to make an about face in the wilderness and head, head back to a place where she knows it's gonna be difficult for her and her son? Well, here's the key to the story. God makes two revelations about himself in these verses, two revelations to Hagar about his character, about his nature, about who he is that is gonna equip her with the resources that she needs to go back into this season of hard obedience. Number one, God says, I'm a God who hears you. Did you notice that in verse 11 when I read it a few moments ago? The angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and will have a son and you will name him Ishmael because the Lord has, let's say this together, the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. You know what the word Ishmael means? It means God hears. Names are really important in the Old Testament. God is revealing something about his own character to Hagar in the naming of her son. And here's what the Lord is saying to Hagar. I will hear you. I have heard you. I've heard your cry of affliction. You've been out here in the wilderness. You've been mistreated. You've run away from home. You've been crying out to me. I've heard you. And I will hear you every time you call on me. When it gets difficult, Hagar, you just call on my name. I'll hear you. Abram and Sarai had been living where they didn't think that God was hearing them. God, where are you? 10 years, you've not given us the promise, but here God comes to Hagar, this Egyptian mistreated slave, and he says, I promise you, I will hear you when you call on me. How could Hagar have the resources to walk back into that hard season of obedience? Because she knew that in the midst of that hard obedience, the Lord would hear her cry. God hears. Do you know that about 
about the Lord? Do you know that whatever you're walking through, whatever situation you happen to be dealing with in your life, that if you will call to the Lord, the Lord will hear you? The Lord may not give you exactly what you're wanting. Doesn't work that way. As Tim Keller says, he'll give you what you asked for or what you would have asked for if you knew all that he knows. God will give you what is best, what is right, what is good. Not what is easiest, but what is good. The Lord hears. And so that's the first thing that she knew about the Lord that's going to give her the resources, give her the strength to be able to go back to Sarai's house and endure whatever awaited her. But then there's a second revelation. Not only God hears, but God sees. God sees. Look, look at verses 13 through 16. Let me just read it, and I want to point out one thing about it. Verse 13. So she, Hagar, named the Lord who spoke to her. You are El Roy. El Roy means God sees. You are the God who sees. For she said, in this place, have I actually seen the one who sees me? That's, that's why the well is called Bir Lahai Roy. That, that means the well of the living one who sees me. And it's between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son. Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Hagar, (laughs) this is amazing. Hagar, in these verses, does what no one else in the entire Old Testament does. She is the only person in the Old Testament to give God a name. Every other name of God in the Old Testament is a name that God reveals about himself only here, the only place in your Old Testament where a human gives God a name, a a name that God embraces. And I think it's fascinating that the first and only time that a human names God comes from the lips of an Egyptian woman. Now, in our day and time, we just read right over that. In that day and time, that the fact that the, the, the God who was named by a human would come from the lips of an Egyptian and somebody from the nations and a, a female would have been mind-blowing. It, it means that no matter who you are, male or female, Jewish or Gentile, slave or free, rich or poor, no matter who you are, you can know God. You can have a relationship with him. Here, this is a great model for that. And notice what she names God. She names him El Roy, the God who sees me. Isn't that beautiful? There's been a motif in this chapter of sight. There's something that Abram and Sarai can't see. They see no child. So they take things into their own hands. Hagar gets pregnant. Hagar sees that she was pregnant. And so Sarai becomes contemptible in her sight. In response, Abram tells Sarai to do to Hagar what is good in her sight. You you pick up on the theme. Everybody's acting according to what they can see. And what they can see is right here and not farther. They are short-sighted. There's a whole lot of human seeing going on. But what about what God sees? The whole point of the story, it's building to a climax here. In the midst of all of this short-sightedness, in in the midst of fuzzy human seeing, there's one who saw clearly. There was one who, who knew Hagar, who heard Hagar, who cared for Hagar, who provided for Hagar, who had a plan for Hagar, who would bless Hagar, who could see Hagar, 
No one else seemed to be able to see her. She was treated like property. No one saw her as a person, but the Lord did. And Hagar knew that whatever that road of obedience would look like, however difficult that would be, that the God who blessed her was the God who saw her. He could see her when no one else could. I want you to know, church, the Lord can see you when no one else can see you. You may feel unseen. You're not. The Lord sees you. And there's nowhere you can go, no desert, no wilderness, nowhere where God can't see you. Where can I go to escape from your spirit, the psalmist says. I go to the grave. Even there, you're there. You see me there. Which, which means, here's the big idea of the text this morning, that you can trust the promise maker to be the promise keeper even when you can't see what he sees. When, when you can't see how, you can rest in the fact that God sees that God can see what you can't see. Mac Brunson tells the story of a deacon at First Baptist Church of Dallas by the name of Ed Yates. And I had the opportunity to meet Mr. Yates once. His grandfather was a, the owner of a sheep ranch down in the Texas Hill Country. And during the Depression, <clears throat> Mr. Yates ran out of money. He didn't have the money to feed his family pay the bills, didn't know what to do. He thought he would lose everything. He thought he would lose the, the ranch, thought he would lose his family. And so he got on government assistance. <clears throat> and every day, Mr. Yates would just walk up and down those hills in the hill country, and he would watch over those sheep, and he would just worry about what he would do if he lost it all. He just would wring his hands. You know, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What's going to happen if I can't pay the bills? It's my only livelihood. It's not working out. He's just walking those hills, looking at those sheep, wringing his hands, asking God, what, what, what's going to happen to me? One day, a group of men, as he's walking those hills, looking over his sheep, a group of men come out to meet him, and they're, they're carrying what looks like survey equipment. And uh, they approached him and said that they wanted to do some seismic readings on his property because they thought there might be oil there. Here's a short story, because I'm out of time. They started drilling. A thousand feet below Mr. Yates, they hit an oil deposit that was bringing out 80,000 barrels of oil a day. Now, if you just want to calculate that up in your mind, oil's like $85 a barrel right now, something like that. Cut that in half if you want. That's millions of dollars every single day. Right after that, they found two more oil deposits on his land. They opened up three rigs. Think about it. There was Mr. Yates walking that land, worrying, wringing his hands. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Not realizing that there was a wealth of oil under his feet. There he is taking government subsidies, not realizing that God had already met 
his need. Listen, folks, you can trust the promise maker to be the promise keeper, even when you can't see what he sees. Amen? Let's bow together. Lord, help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, I pray that if anyone is here today and they're worried, they're wondering how they're going to make it, how you're going to come through, Lord, show yourself strong. Help us to see you and trust that you see us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.